The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to you all today. Guests, members, visitors, if you're here uh, just checking things out, we want to thank you so much for being here. And uh, we really, really value hospitality here at the Springs, so if you'll give us a chance and just kind of stick around a little bit afterwards, we'd love to be able to meet you, greet you, and get to know you a little bit. Um, And if you're watching on the live stream, thanks for tuning in or listening to the podcast later. Uh, Glad that you're interested in this sermon series, uh, which uh, finishes up next week. This week is week four of Easter, the Resurrected Life. And Ben is going to close that out for us next week, and part of the sermon time, he's going to be interviewing a friend of his named Margaret Carter, and I think that's really, really going to be cool. You're not going to want to miss that, Uh, so definitely get out here next week, as well as the week after that, which is May 6th, and I'm excited to announce that is the beginning of our new sermon series, Psalms, the Seasons of Life. Uh, ben and I really try to submit ourselves and all of us as a congregation under God's authority through His Word in all of it. And so we try to spend time in the New and the Old Testaments, and we're going to be diving into the Old here on a deep dive with the Psalms, and specifically reading them in different seasons, different places of our lives. And so I think it's going to be a fruitful study with you all. I'm looking forward to it. But this morning we continue the resurrected life, and we do that in 1 John 3, 16 through 24. Let me read our text once more as we dive in. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help. Little children, let us love not in word or deed, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before Him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Beloved, If our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from Him whatever we ask because we obey His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. All who obey His commandments abide in Him, and He abides in them. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit He has given us. Let's pray, church. Spirit, You are welcome here. Holy Spirit, we invite You and we thank You for inviting us into this place, Lord. We thank You for abiding in us and for teaching us how to love. God, thank you for showing us that not only do you love us, but you are love itself, Lord. Help us to see that love more clearly. 
God, I ask for the gift of preaching this morning, and I ask for our hearts to be opened and illumined by your word together as your body. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Everybody loves a good sequel. New developments, new story, deeper extrapolations. A good sequel is a very satisfying thing because it takes all that we loved before and it goes further with it. It takes the implications even farther. A good sequel is, is wonderful. Godfather 2, uh, Spider-Man 2, Home Alone 2. It's a good movie. But a bad sequel is a very unsatisfying thing for the exact opposite of the reasons I just listed. A bad sequel takes something we love and it destroys it. It takes something deep and it makes it shallow. It's awful. Bad sequels, everybody hates them. Godfather 3. Spider-Man 3. Home Alone 3. But a good sequel is worth our attention because it takes things deeper. And this morning we've got a sequel on our hands. And it's a good one. Not this sermon, although I hope it's good and I hope you don't call this my Home Alone 3 sermon. <laughs> but the text, because a month ago we got to spend some time in John 3.16. Uh, the most famous passage in the world today, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And we got to talk about love and cruciform love in that passage. And this morning is a bit of a sequel. For one, we're in 1 John which is a little bit like a sequel to the Gospel of John. It's not in narrative form, but some people have thought of 1 John as kind of a commentary upon John's Gospel. And not only that, but this morning we are in 1 John 3.16. And this is a good sequel because it takes all of the elements of the first one and it goes deeper with it. It takes all of the, the God-sending, the God-loving, Jesus Christ coming, and it says, so what? It draws out the implications further, and it asks, what happens if Jesus came to earth? So what that God loves us? And that's what we're going to ask together this morning in 1 John 3.16. But before we zero in on verse 16, I want to kind of set the scene by moving towards the end of the passage. So turn over to verses 21 through 23 with me. John writes, Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from Him whatever we ask, because we obey His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. In the Gospels, when Jesus wants to sum up His entire message, when He wants to sum up all of the law, all of those codes and regulations, how does He do it? Love God, love others. And the Apostle Paul when he talks about fulfilling all of the law, when he talks about these three that remain, faith, hope, and love, what does he say? The greatest of these is love. 
when Jesus and Paul want to distill the gospel message down to one word, it comes back to love. And yet, as adamant as they are about love, there is perhaps no other place in Scripture that so emphatically, repeatedly, deeply champions love like 1 John. 1 John is, if we could illustrate it as a stage of life, it's, it's like a middle school romance. That's the obsession of 1 John with love, with love, love, love. Every page is about love, and love is absolutely central to the ethic of the New Testament, and nothing champions it like the epistle of 1 John. And I think that's an emphasis that our world today has largely absorbed as well. Uh, those of us, especially living in the Western world, feel this influence, this focusing on the concept of love. It's at the center of everything we do and, and think. It's, it's the most central part of our worldview. And this is something that I think we've inherited from Christian thought. It's, it's left a great impact on us. Uh, love is, I mean, think about everything that you consume, the last movie you watched, the last TV show you watched, the last novel you read, the last song you heard on the radio. How many of them were touched in some way or focused specifically on the topic of love? And in fact, James Taylor, I think this lyric contains what might be like a triple negative but I still like his, his lyric from Carolina in my mind. He says, there ain't no doubt in no one's mind that love's the finest thing around. That is something that I would say all of us would agree on. Love is the best thing that we have. But there's a problem that accompanies all of this. There's a problem that accompanies this, and I'll illustrate that with another song lyric, a little bit more danceable. And that is, what is love? The answer is not, baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> Oftentimes, as, as fixated on love as we are as a culture, love in our culture is increasingly ill-defined. It's increasingly vague and, and kind of a nebulous idea for us. And, and some of this, I think, is uh, attributable to our language, right? So you probably know that while English only has one word for love, many other languages have a plethora of words to talk about love. And therefore, you don't have to use the same word for pizza that you use for people. That's a problem, when you have to use the same word, it becomes difficult to define. I was talking to Mitt Vickerman, one of our resident linguists. I think he speaks like six languages. And he was saying in, in his in like Indian tongue from his homeland, there's like seven or eight words for love. That would be helpful. I think that would be a very helpful tool for us. But it's not just language. I think, I think it goes beyond language, that our commitment to love as an ethic is often nebulous. It's often unmoored. It, it becomes vague. We know that we love love. 
but we don't always know what it means. Uh, some of you might be fans of the TV show Parks and Recreation. Um, if you're not, um, there's a fictional company on the show that's supposed to be kind of a mixture of like Google, Apple, and Facebook all in one. They're called Grizzle. And the company is, is kind of uh, portrayed pretty humorously as, you know, Silicon Valley, a very new agey, kind of yuppie, uh, you know, young professional, laid-back work environment. And this is made most clearly in the company's motto, which is, wouldn't it be tight if everyone was chill to each other? This is, this is the company's motto. And I think this in some ways exemplifies, a little bit exaggeratedly, but our view of love at times. Right? Love is mostly about being chill to each other. Right? It's kind of a, kind of a go along to get along, live and let live kind of mentality. And, and, and there's a part of that that's very good. I think. Uh, I think even to an extent our, our New Testament authors might even agree with this. You know, we could hear Paul writing to us, yes, indeed, brothers and sisters, it is tight when you are chill to one another. I think that's something to be happy about. But what we can say about the New Testament, what we can say about the Christian ethic of love is that it would not leave it so vague. The Christian ethic of love is not ill-defined. It is concrete. It has meaning. It has significance for life. So if that's the case, how do we define it? How does our text define it? How do we define anything? How do we find meaning and understanding and make sense of the world? Well, I want to propose this morning that we find meaning, that we define things by story. Story defines meaning. Without a story, we can't make sense of our actions. We can't make sense of others' actions. We can't make sense of a concept like love without a narrative, without a story. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, Alastair McIntyre says, imagine that you're standing at a bus stop and a young man comes up to you and he says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. And you're like, what? Now, what he has just said actually is true. Um, if we've got any scientists in here, that is the actual Latin name for the common wild duck, Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. But how do we make sense of what has just happened? How do we understand and define what he's just said and what it means to us in this situation? Well, one way that we could make sense of it is to say that he, he might be mentally ill, right? So that sad life story of untreated mental illness could make sense of this situation to us. Or another story might be that he was talking to somebody else 
at the bus stop the previous day who looks like us, and, the, and he had already been talking to them about ducks, and so he mistook us for that same person. That might be another way to make sense of it. Or perhaps a, a juicier version might be that this young man is a foreign spy, and he has uh, arranged a rendezvous with another spy, and he has just uttered the ill-chosen code word to identify himself. But the point behind all of this is that you need a story to understand it. We can't make sense of what has happened. There's no way to make significance to define these words for us without a story, without a narrative. And that is how we make sense of everything in our lives, of everything in the world, of our actions and our ethics. Story defines meaning. And so our society might say, okay, story defines meaning. Choose your story. Choose your story. Story defines love. Choose your story. And that rings true for a lot of us, but there's a problem with that for us that are Christians this morning. And the problem with that is that as Christians, we believe we already have a story. As Christians, we believe we already have a story, that our personal, individual stories are already subsumed in a much larger, much more significant, much longer story of God and His people, of Jesus Christ on the cross, in the resurrection, the gospel story is what defines us. The gospel story is precisely how we make meaning, and this is exactly what we find in 1 John 3.16. I want to read it in the NIV. I think they state it about as clearly as it can be said. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. In other words, this is the story that defines love. Jesus Christ crucified. This is the story that defines love for us. Jesus Christ in the gospel. Love is not just some nebulous word. Love is not just some heart emoji. Love has real concrete meaning and definition. And it finds that meaning in the story of Jesus Christ. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And if we follow 1 John even further, I think we find more about this story. We find that we don't know this story in the same ways that we know other things. It's not enough to just know this story through speech, but that this story calls us to get in on it, calls us to participate in it. Take a look at verses 17 through 19. Continue with me. It says, How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. 
And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. John says to know love's story, you've got to start living according to that story. It's not enough to have words or speech. You've got to love in truth and action. And then he gives us a very concrete, simple example. One of the biggest emphases in the New Testament are resources. And this is a very convicting verse for me. Not to oversimplify, but it jumps out like kind of a math equation. It basically says, Brett, your goods plus their need times nothing equals where's the love? Where's it at? Because if you're really living a part of this story, if you're really living by a love defined by the gospel, it's going to show up in truth and in action, church. We talk quite a bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer in our churches today. But I think that's because his life is such a stark example of, of a life of love lived not just in word and speech, though that's there, but a life lived in truth and action. And in 1933, when the German National Church acquiesced to the Nazis, some of Bonhoeffer's students said, okay, this is bad, obviously, but let's stay in the church, let's stay in this German National Church, and we'll, we'll preach sermons, we'll try to change it from within. Let's change it with our words. To which he responded with a phrase that I believe with all of my heart. He said, one act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. One act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. It's a humbling thing for me to say up here. But I believe it. And I believe it because the intelligibility of the Christian faith doesn't rest on what Ben and I say up here every week. We take that responsibly very seriously and joyfully, but the intelligibility of the Christian faith doesn't rest on the microphone of sermon, it rests on the megaphone of action. Church, it rests on us getting outside these walls and living in truth and in action. Being chill to each other is great. We could all use a little more chill to each other. But love is not live and let live. Love is I die so you can live. Love is Jesus Christ died so we can live and so we can live out the gospel love in truth and in action. One act of obedience is better than 100 sermons and that is most and entirely true in the one act of obedience of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ in the resurrection. In John chapter 11 he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who loves and believes in me will never die.
Do you believe this? Do you believe this, church? If you do, go and live accordingly. Let's go and do likewise, and let's begin by praising him in song.